Let me ask a question. That when Jesus asks us to turn the other cheek, did he mean that it was wrong to defend yourself? Someone once said this. If you are in the wrong, you don't have a defense. And if you are in the right, you don't need one. I wonder if that applies to all cases. Because here in the book of Acts, Paul has been giving his defense on multiple occasions. Now, this is not an academic question, but very practical. Because for most of us, in fact, I would say all of us, we have had a confrontation, a conflict, a business deal go bad. Some have been sued. Uh, there's a friend who, who gets sideways with us. No one here can say, I've never had this happen before. Like a protracted courtroom drama, the last chapters of Acts depict Paul's dealing with Rome and the Jews with false charges made against him. In chapter 25, we have four scenes. You have Festus in Jerusalem who meets with the Jewish leaders. You have Paul before Festus in Caesarea. You have Festus meeting with Agrippa and Bernice, and then Agrippa and Bernice meeting with Paul. So let's start with Acts 25, verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, Festus is the replacement for Felix. We've talked about Felix the last couple chapters. Felix has been fired by Nero. And Felix was a vindictive sort. He was a corrupt ruler. Festus was an improvement of character and leadership. But he was still a politician, uh, trying to please multiple parties. Festus only served a couple years because he died in, uh, from an illness in 62 A.D., and it has been two years from chapter 24 to chapter 25. And Paul has been unjustly jailed and accused. I want you to notice something. There is no angel that has come down to rescue Paul in this scenario. There is no earthquake to shake him loose. Now, God is able, and he has done supernatural things in the past, even with Paul, but not here. Not from what we know in the last couple years, because he's still jailed. I want us to recognize that extended, difficult times took place with no obvious supernatural intervention in the life of the Apostle Paul. Yes, he had seen it in years past, but not here. Not for the last couple years, at least. Now, this does not mean that God was asleep. This does not mean that God does not work. 
But it was certainly in a way, in his work here, was in a way that would not please our kind of triumphant Western Christian expectation. Verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor, this is verse 3 now, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. By necessity, Roman uh, procurators wanted to establish a working relationship with the Jewish leaders. That would mean the Sanhedrin, uh, the chief priests, and other leaders. The job for Festus would not be easy to follow Felix because Felix strong-armed people. Felix used deceit that created political enemies, including the Jews. So he would have a lot of patching up to do. So after getting to Jerusalem, Festus and the Jews are motivated to find a solution about the apostle Paul. The question is, can Festus do this while maintaining Roman justice? Now, the motives of the Jews are plain, right? We know what they want to do. They want Paul killed, especially uh, as he goes from Caesarea, they hope, to Jerusalem. Now, for years, Jews have harbored ill will toward Paul. Isn't it true that many times hatred and malice die hard? For this religious group of leaders, darkness was alive and it was festering. You know, one of the things we notice about this whole COVID-19 season and a host of other issues that our society faces is the cultural, religious, and political divides causing a polarization of positions. And over time, these positions get hardened and have little resemblance to careful thought and facts, at least Many of these positions do. The fact is, all of us, and I include myself in this, have difficulty looking beyond our bias. And all of us have a bias, right? Typically, when facts are given contrary to a, a held position, cognitive dissonance produces uncomfortableness. And people quickly retreat to the comfort of their own bias. Now, Paul found himself a victim of religious bias and human jealousy. In fact, if we looked at the historical record from 12 years before what we're reading here in Acts 25, it says this. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Filled with jealousy, contradicting him, trying to muddy the waters. Now, I think it's safe to say that for all these years, those heart issues have not been solved with many of these Jewish leaders. They were blinded by the way they dealt with not only Paul, but the other apostles. And it was even hypocritical to their own law that they said that they followed. 
truly, in this sense, it was a denial of the truth. It was a denial of reality. They were creating their own reality. The litany of claims today by political parties and cultural commentators, I think, does kind of a similar thing because it kind of creates this, we throw up our hands as, as we get this freight train of cultural um, biases and, and, and opinions thrown our way that are different than this guy's and different than that guy's. And we throw up our hands and we say, well, how do you know it's true? And many people will say, well, I guess there's nothing you'll ever know as really true. And I think that Paul had to be discouraged because he was many times trying to, you know, state his case. And then these Jews would come and contradict what he was saying. And in the eyes of some, could it be that they were saying, well, maybe we'll never get to the truth. We'd like to think that the Roman leaders knew what the truth was and they were cowardly. And maybe that's the case in some hearts today. But I think part of it also is that there's this great confusion. So I think Paul could be discouraged waiting all these years. And perhaps it was this very promise of Jesus that echoed in the ears of Paul. He said this, Jesus did in Luke 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. At the very least, you know what we see here? That God is the source of truth. That God is the one that gives us the courage to speak the truth at critical moments. It implies to us that we are not alone that we are not defenseless, that truth does exist, and God knows it. In fact, God has created it. Truth is whatever is consistent with his, his character and what he says. And I would say particularly when before government and religious leaders, which is the context of the statement that Jesus made and the context of what we're reading in the book of Acts, we're not alone, we're not defenseless. And I want you to notice that Jesus seems to be giving the okay to defend yourself in those cases, especially when government and religious leaders accuse you. I think drawing this same Principle with personal relationships may have less application, but I think we're on firm ground to say with government and religious officials when falsely accused, bring it on, right? But the major point is this, that God is there, that God knows truth and speaks truth and will reveal truth, and you must not think that God has left the building or left you alone. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So Festus, trying to placate the Jews, invites them 
to come to Caesarea and make a case against Paul. Now, this has already been done with Felix, and their false charges were easily recognized. So Festus is inviting them to do it again. The motives clearly are political, to buy time, to placate the Jews. Maybe he thought by some magical trick, this matter might be resolved if they went through this whole thing again. A week and a half later, Festus makes his way to Caesarea. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. This is verse 6. He went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So an official hearing commences in Caesarea as Festus convenes the court and took his place on the bema or judgment seat. And the accusers, Luke paints a wonderful picture, are almost like vultures circling about, hurling charges. Yet none of these accusations could be sustained by either proof or witnesses. I want us to recognize that when it comes to malice and jealousy, years often do not dissipate the feelings. Paul had to rehear these old charges, and perhaps it opened up wounds. And I think many have to endure hardship when it comes to conflicts in business or maybe even a divorce or some other venue where it seems you cannot escape the pain and you are taking the scab off again. A common question would be, can't God see what's going on? Is God there? The psalmist would often ask for vindication upon his enemies. I think all of us can relate to those feelings. But in the midst of these questions, psalms provide a compass. Listen to this, Psalm 7. My shield is with God, who saves the upright. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 27. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your voice, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. The closest people I know in my life, my mother and father have forsaken me, but you, Lord, are enough to sustain me. It is not the alleviation of pain that is our hope on this earth. 
Our hope is God himself. It's his presence. It's, it's our coming to him, knowing he hears us, experiencing his closeness, knowing that he provides peace, that he's a sovereign God who intervenes and can teach us his ways. It's our hope. Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now Paul covers the ground that he has stated before. The offenses charged against him were that he brought a, gal- uh, a, uh, a Gentile into a restricted zone of the temple that he was disrespectful and dismissive of the Old Testament law. In fact, the Jews were jealous of Paul's ministry. They rejected Christ as the risen Messiah, and by implication, they rejected the gospel. Those are the facts. Now, Luke doesn't go into detail here in chapter 25 of all of the defense that Paul gave, but he gives us a recap that he did not defile the temple or the law, and he was respectful of Roman laws. Sadly, Festus does not judge on the evidence here. If he did, he would find Paul innocent. Felix didn't do it either. Festus is trying to appease the Jews. And um, he was inquiring, as we'll see, about Paul going to Jerusalem to do the Jews a favor. And this would be a huge mistake if Paul were to acquiesce to this. It would be like asking a black man to have a fair trial in Alabama in the 50s, all right? It just isn't going to happen. Paul knew that there would be little change of justice in Jerusalem, that the deck was stacked against him in Jerusalem. But Festus was concerned about throwing the Jews a bone to gain their favor. And for the Jewish standpoint, they had no concern for truth or justice. Verse 3 tells us they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Verse 10. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, do not seek to escape death, but there is nothing to their charges against me. No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul was willing to have true justice done to him if he was guilty. If he had done something wrong, he was willing to pay the price. But the Jews had no interest in true justice. They simply wanted Paul dead. Paul understood that if justice would have been done, this Roman court would have found him innocent. If he was given to the Jews and taken to Jerusalem, it would be a travesty of justice, and Paul would be dead. Bias takes the blindfold off of justice. 
Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. In this sense, Paul was following the words of Jesus to his disciples to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Listen, Paul was not willing to, let's just go ahead and put my head in a lion and see what happens. No, he wasn't trying to test God. The father never asked him to, you know, stand in the middle of an interstate. Prove your trust for me. We can take advantage of human government and freedoms that they give us and trust God for the rest. Paul did not lack faith any more than a person lacks faith by calling the police to address a prowler. We can use the government and authority afforded to us. The fact was that if a Roman citizen felt he was not getting justice in the court, he could directly appeal to the emperor. Only if a person was caught in an act was the appeal invalid. In all other uh, cases, the claimant had to be dispatched to Rome by a, and, and then would, be, uh, would succumb to a personal decision of the emperor. A Roman citizen could not be executed without a trial, could not be crucified without the order from the emperor. So Paul was submitting himself to Rome as was his right. But ultimately... His appeal of being a child of God was greater. And it was there that he left his fate to rest. Verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. We've already seen that the Caesar here is Nero. Now anyone familiar with Caesar's later uh, years knows that there was persecution for Christians in Rome because of him. But those were at the end of his reign and where, where his dark side was prominent, not so much in his early years when this was taking place. So Festus had to agree to Paul's request, and he had to release him to be heard by Nero. I want you to notice something, that Paul's purpose was not for vengeance against those falsely accusing him. Though I think any of us would understand if he did that, right? Instead, he seems to kind of turn the cheek and not even address them in terms of, you know, what should be done to them that they're doing this. In fact, turning the cheek, that's an idea that was deposited by Jesus in Matthew 5. He said this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Hmm. I mean, a person normally would think they're justified to apply some justice. You take my eye, I'm going to take yours. That seemed to make sense. But Jesus is giving a higher ethic, right? Now, just think if those two men in Georgia would have gone by Jesus' words instead of their own ethic. 
killing a black man who they say was suspected of a crime. Even if he was, I would suggest to you, them executing justice was not the first priority. In turning the other cheek and having someone take your cloak and in going the extra mile, the emphasis is not retaliating. That's the government's job. We don't angrily get back at someone. See, it's a way for God's people to be recognized in the world because how others treat us does not dictate to us our response. Instead of acting out in the flesh, Jesus says, bless, love your enemy. Now, it's sometimes likely that the other person isn't interested in having any relationship, doesn't want to engage, doesn't want to talk. You don't even have an opportunity to bless them. Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if at all possible, be at peace with all men. The implication is not all people want to be at peace. I think it's safe to say the Jews in Acts 25 had murder on their mind and not reconciliation. I love the fact that the Bible does not skirt any of these issues. And it, it, it gives examples of protecting yourself through the government, or whatever means the law allows. There's something here that, and I don't want to read too much into this passage, but I, I found it interesting that perhaps it's not so much the act of giving to an enemy, but maybe it's defining people as an enemy that's the problem. I mean, I've had several people who've done evil things against me, and it's easy to define them as an enemy from that point forward. And I'm sure you could name a couple of people yourself. One truth of this passage is that nowhere in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, is enemy attached to the person. Even though they take an eye, they slap you, they steal your clothes, they cause you to do something you don't want to do, they borrow something they don't give back. And the worst you can say is that they did evil against you. But defining them as an enemy? How about we define them as made in the image of God, loved by God, and that their identity is not wrapped up in being my enemy? I don't want those who do evil against me to kill me, and I will do whatever I can lawfully do to protect myself and my family. However, evildoers are victims of the real enemy. They still need the loving grace of Christ. I have a feeling Paul knew this and utilized his lawful rights while falsely accused, never forgetting lying Jews and corrupt Romans were humans needing the grace of God. May we live in light of the same. Turn the other cheek, not play dead, but be deliberate in our view of all people as ready recipients of God's grace. So I'd like for you to join me in prayer.